Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this special edition of Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's Richard Seaver Music Director, James Conlon, contemplates some of the rich musical works, oratorios, opera, and stage festival plays that have been associated with Easter traditions and celebrations. This is James Conlon. That, of course, is the Hallelujah Chorus from George Frederick Handel's Messiah, one of the world's most famous choruses, which has traveled to and penetrated every corner of the globe. Messiah, Handel's preeminent oratorio, is in three parts. Christmas, Christ's Passion, and the Promise of the Resurrected Life. The Hallelujah Chorus closes the Easter portion. Last December, at the time of the holidays, winter solstice, and New Year's, we listened together to several classical composers who were observing the tradition, mostly religious, of celebrating both the rebirth of the earth, the beginning of the sun's six-month growth from the shortest to the longest day, and along with that, both the so-called pagan rituals and the more modern Christian-era celebration of the birth of Christ. Now, approximately a quarter of a year later, tradition has it that we celebrate rebirth again, this time on the occasion of the spring equinox, when hours of light are clearly in the ascendancy, celebrations and metaphors of renewal, fertility, and sowing of seeds abound. Did the ancients consider that they needed more than one rebirth per year? It would seem so. And so celebrations and religious rituals followed. But Christian Easter is associated with those previous rituals of rebirth, and consequently Christ's resurrection from the dead after three days, it captured the spirit of those earlier rituals and replaced them as Christianity became the dominant societal force. Now, just as a refresher, as we discussed previously, religious classical music is predominantly, if not exclusively, Christian. As Christianity grew in scope and overcame Judaism, and the many religions that were collectively called pagan, its overwhelming dominance over European civilization extended to all forms of culture. The equivalency that Christianity was religious belief was inescapable as it was ironclad. Not surprising, then, artists and composers left behind great works in the Christian tradition. Last time we heard works of Johann Sebastian Bach, Handel, and Franz Liszt, and so we will again. There isn't as strong a popular association with seasonal music at Easter and the spring equinox as there is at Christmas, New Year, and the winter solstice. But in the classical world, there are powerful homages to both. Let's look first at Easter and then spring. Easter falls into two leading subjects, separating joy and celebration from the drama of Christ's suffering and crucifixion. It is significant that the latter of these the two extant Passions of Bach, for instance, he wrote five, are Matthew and John. The Passions, as a genre, has left an impressive line of works right up until the present. But interestingly enough, the numerous settings of the Stabat Mater far outdistance the Passions. 
it might be constructive to muse on how and why the relative sparsity of oratorios about the celebration and joy of Easter lag far behind the passions and the stabat maters. Does this disequilibrium presage and show us something about the seemingly distant relationship to the future of opera? Simply put, why in the ensuing centuries was there a recurring need to express suffering more than rejoicing and jubilation? Now another reminder, religious music's most complex and largest form was that of the oratorio, just as the opera was to music, drama, and theater. Religious authorities decreed that scriptural and biblical subjects were forbidden in theaters so that mythological subjects, tales of antiquity, historical or pseudo-historical, and eventually purely secular subjects became opera substance. But what about dramatic narratives coming from scriptural sources? The oratorio, the passions, and the large choral forms could comfortably house religious drama without ecclesiastical objection. I reiterate my point made earlier. Oratorio and opera are two branches of the same tree and, in fact, have a common root, the medieval passion plays and Easter pageants. Starting in predominantly Roman Catholic countries, the enactment of Christ's passion in town squares and the events of the Holy Week preceding Easter developed first out of liturgical injunction before taking on a life of their own. But they were also opposed, particularly in the Reformation, and the impulse moved indoors into the churches and with the supervision of the clergy. Bach's two towering masterpieces, if ever the lost ones could be found, set out a perfect synthesis of soloistic and choral art, instrumental and vocal polyphony, scriptural narrative and dramatization, and the personal pious professions of faith. They were all structured around congregational participation in the form of hymns composed in four-part chorales. elements of future theatrical opera are to be found in the Bach passions. It is no accident that in contemporary theater there are stagings and choreographies of both. And not just Bach, but Handel, Stutzel, Telemann, and in our time Penderecki, Golijov, Reim, Dunn, and Gubay Dulina. Haydn and Frank wrote offshoots in the form of the Seven Last Words of Christ. Interestingly enough, the Stabat Mater, a religious poem generally attributed to the 13th century Umbrian monk Jacopone da Todi, has proven more resilient than even the Passion as an ongoing inspiration to classical composers. Despite suppression by the Church for 200 years, composers were attracted to it. Wikipedia lists over 50 examples Josquin Dupré, De Lassus, Charpentier, Vivaldi, both Scarlattis, Pergolesi, Haydn, Schubert, Rossini, Liszt, Dvorak, Verdi, Poulenc, Szymanowski, Part, and Macmillan, to name but a few. The number of Stabat Maters, with Mary, the mother of Christ as protagonist, 
surpass the passions with Christ and his crucifixion and agony as a centerpiece. And together they far outweigh the celebratory, joyous memorializations of the events of Easter itself. It seems that the deep pathos and rich expression of sorrow and suffering was far more fertile than simple joy. Just as opera seria, transforming into tragedy and melodrama, slowly pushed out the comedy and opera buffa, so did music of Christ's passion, in its etymological sense, meaning suffering, dominate over celebration. Why did Christ's passion generate so much more music than the joy of his resurrection? We can only hypothesize. The compelling dramatic narrative from Christ's return to Jerusalem through the crucifixion is so powerful that it caused a genre to be born. It evoked and channeled feelings of pain, sadness, suffering, and distress. Human passions, in the derivative secondary sense of the word, meaning strong, uncontrollable emotions that overrule the mind, reason, and moral constraints, found its kinship in lyric theater. The passions, in their way, would lay the groundwork and eventually provide fodder for a seemingly inexhaustible appetite for operatic subjects. So, unlike the Christmas birth, which essentially evokes joy, Easter starts with suffering and death before rebirth and resurrection. Clearly, the muses, poets, artists, and composers instinctively were more deeply drawn to expressing the sorrow, grief, and anguish in the drama of Christ's death. His mother's pain at the foot of the cross, recounted in the Stabat Mater, struck a universal chord. In compiling works for you to hear for this podcast, it struck me what a rich and varied field it is. As usual, the excerpts are frustratingly short, but you can hear the entire works by following the accompanying playlist. My purpose now is to whet your appetite. Let's start with Bach and the celebratory. The Easter Oratorial's overture clearly rejoices in Christ's resurrection. Its second movement, written in minor, immediately reminds us of the recent emotions of the crucifixion. Before it passes into a series of exchanges between four characters, Peter, John, Mary Magdalene, and Mary, daughter of James, who recount that Christ is risen. Christ. <laughs> 
Oratorio, or Cantata as it was first called, was first heard on Easter Sunday, 1725. It followed two days after the second rendition of The Passion According to John. Two years later, Bach wrote The Matthew Passion, one of the great monuments of Western classical music. Though clearly written for church, it has all of the elements of opera. We will return to it next season when we perform it at L.A. Opera in collaboration with the Hamburg Ballet and John Neumeyer. I will only touch on it now to make the point about the deeper relationship between oratorio and opera we have mentioned. It is structured around the narration of Christ's passion and death, drawn from the evangelist Matthew, with a dramatic function shared by a large double chorus, two orchestras, solo arias, and chorale. The Passion is bookended by two cathedral-like monumental double choruses expressing the universal sorrow of Christ's crucifixion. Chorus has multiple functions as a participant in the story and significantly the turba or crowd as the community of believers and as the congregation. As in any Baroque or classical opera, there is a constant interplay of narrative, so-called secco dry recitative with sparse accompaniment of organ and cello in this case to push the story forward. That connective thread is put in the mouth of a tenor who is identified as the evangelist, that is, Matthew. Short bit parts from the drama briefly appear from time to time in recitative. Judas, Peter, high priests, Pontius Pilate and his wife, two witnesses and two maids. Most significantly, Jesus, a bass, speaks in the form of accompanied recitative, that is, with string orchestra, which surrounds his words with a sort of halo. Now we hear first the evangelists and then Christ in their differentiated recitatives. Was er gekreuziget werde. Each dramatic section is set up for one of the soloists, soprano, alto, tenor, or bass. 
to reflect as a religious meditation in the present, adding theological personal reactions to the gospel. As such, it parallels divisions of labor to be found for 200 years of operatic composition. The arias are written in ABA form, which means there are two contrasting sections, the first one being repeated after the second one. They are usually embellished by solo instruments, flutes, oboes, oboe d'amor, oboe da caccia, which means hunt, or the viola da gamba, in two cases, the solo violin. One of them, the alto aria called Erbarme dich, mein Gott, Have pity on me, my God, is, even in the context of the massive patrimony left by Bach, a moment of unsurpassed sublimity. The chapters are closed by a series of Lutheran chorales, constantly reharmonized and sung by the congregation, thus closing the fourth wall to this religious service of the time, which has, in its time, transcended all eras.
The final chorus is the summation. An early Stabat Mater, written in 1736, ten years after Bach's Matthew Passion, is that of Giovanni Battista Pergolesi. It has stood the test of time very well. Written for two sopranos and a small ensemble, it has been expanded by subsequent interpreters, but perhaps is best appreciated in its original dimensions. In December, we also heard some of the Christmas portion of Franz Liszt's massive oratorio, Christus. Like Messiah, it is in three parts, Christmas, after Epiphany, and then the Passion and Resurrection. There is a powerfully dramatic section devoted to Christ's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane that opens the third section. The kinship of Liszt and Wagner inhabits the nocturnal scene in the Garden, and the baritone's spiritual pain looks forward towards Parsifal. This is followed by Liszt's rendition of the Stabat Mater, substantial enough that it could stand on its own without the rest of Christus. Here is a taste of this half-hour movement.
Verdi's Stampet Mater was published in 1898, together with three other choral works, and they have become known as the Quattro Pezzi Sacri, Four Sacred Pieces. But they were written separately, and the Stampet Mater was last, making it literally Verdi's final composition. It is a concise, highly chromatic, expressive work, as one would expect from this now octogenarian force of nature. Despite its religious meaning, Verdi, ever the agnostic, leaves us hanging in doubt, as he does at the end of its companion piece, the Te Deum and the Requiem itself. If I had to choose one stop at Mater above all others, I think it would be Dvorak's. To me, it is one of his most sublime pieces. Ten movements sprawled over 90 minutes, almost all slow-moving and deeply rich in its harmonic and melodic flow. It reveals an aspect of Dvorak that is all too underappreciated. Chorus, orchestra, and soloists begin with a descriptive and poignant canvas of the scene of the crucifixion, with the emphasis on the deep connection between mother and son. The first two movements are narrative and tell the story. Oh! <laughs> 
Thereafter, every movement is a prayer to the Virgin Mother, imploring her intercession. It emphasizes a deeply compassionate sharing of her grief and loss. Though there is perhaps a mix of fact and fiction regarding its composition, it is undeniable that Dvorak had lost his first three small children around the time of his composition. The Swiss composer Frank Martin's Golgotha is a striking work. Written between 1945 and 1948, it is based on biblical sources in alternation with text by St. Augustine. This excerpt, Jesus' Discourse in the Temple, is a distinctive and remarkable passage. <laughs> Karol Szymanowski's version is another haunting work translated into Polish and premiered in Warsaw in 1929. <laughs> Arvo Pert, the Estonian composer, has written extensive religious music. He wrote this Stabat Mater first in 1985 for three singers and string trio, but expanded it to full orchestra and chorus in 2008. Its deeply mystical ambience captures yet another aspect of the original poem's latent potential.
Backtracking into the 19th century and approaching opera is, of course, Giochino Rossini's Stabat Mater, completed in 1841. Rossini's comedies and melodramas defined the first part of the century, and he wrote far fewer religious works. But this is amongst his masterpieces. From the strict division of oratorio and opera, we have evolved into a more palpable connection to this operatic spiritual idiom. And finally, to Richard Wagner and his last work, Parsifal. Not an opera, not a music drama, but in his words, Bühnenweihfestspiel, a stage festival play. We have, in an elliptical way, returned full circle from the original passion plays to a total blending of spirituality and theatrical drama. It seems appropriate to sign off with what Wagner describes as Karfreitag Zauber, it is usually translated as the magic of Good Friday. Let's listen to that magic. I'm James Conlon.
If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.